the following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning. Let us show our surrender now to God and His Word by turning in the Bible to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, third book in the Bible, chapter 19. Chapter 19. God begins in this chapter by making a general statement about himself and who he is, and then he unpacks it. So Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and then we will read from verse 9 through verse 18. Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, and the true and the living God, we approach you today as our creator, as our upholder, as the one who manages everything. We cannot escape from your presence, and we cannot escape from your control, nor do we desire to. Because it is your very presence, your very sovereignty, your very grace and mercy, which is our confidence, 
our life and our joy. It's our privilege, Lord, today to be under your power, to be under your righteousness, your mercy, your wisdom, and your grace. And through Christ, your love for us, which is steadfast and everlasting, can never allow us to be separated from you. Because through Christ, we are with you and yours forever. Because of that this morning, Father, we come to you through the new and living way made by our Lord Jesus. And we bring everything that we have to you. We bring our fears to you. And we ask that you would take our worries this morning and banish them in your care. We bring to you our anger, our frustration, and we ask that you would remove them through your most wise and holy plan. We bring our sins to you, and we ask that you would forgive our sins, the sins of our family, the sins of our church, the sins of our nation, and we ask that you would forgive our sins through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we bring our needs and we bring our concerns to you. And we ask that you would hear us as we present them to you and answer them in your patient and all-wise love. Our Father, we bring our nation to you today and we ask that you would heal us as a people, as a nation. And we ask that you would bring us prosperity by turning us in repentance we bring our church before you this morning. We bring those of us who are ill, those of us who are shut in, those of us who cannot be here today for various reasons. And we ask that you would bless them and remember them where they are as part of our body. We bring to you our church finances, thanking you for the way that you have blessed us year after year and again this year meeting all of our financial needs. Give us financial wisdom. Grant us financial faithfulness as we use the resources that you have given to us to further your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the unity that we experience today as a church. Keep strife and conflict far from us and bind us closer together as you bind us closer to Jesus Christ, our head. And, Father, we pray today that you would grant us growth and grace. And as we present our bodies, as we just sang, in surrender, as, as living sacrifices to you, that is our acceptable worship. And we pray that you would keep us from conformity to the world, transform us in the renewal of our minds, and enable us to test and prove what is your will each day what is good and acceptable for us. Now, Father, as we prepare to hear your word, grant us listening minds, open and hearing ears, ready wills to do your word. Call us, Father. Call us through your word. Command us. And by your grace, we will respond. For Jesus' sake we pray.
never a good thing. Oh, there we go. When the people in the sound booth look at you and just do this. That usually means operator error in the pulpit. Okay. James chapter 2. I'm going to look this morning at verses 1 through 13. Follow along if you have your Bible with you. My brothers, James writes, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there. Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, the kingdom which He's promised to those who love Him? But you've dishonored the poor. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's God's word for us today. If you're one who has any experience at all in studying and teaching God's word, you know by experience that when you prepare to, to study and to teach, that God has a way of causing you in your life to process what you're studying before you present it to other people. He has a unique and remarkable way about bringing things into your life that, that cause you to practice what you preach often before you preach it. I've noticed that trend in my life over the years, but I would have to say I cannot think of a time in my recent memory where God has done that in a more pointed and direct and penetrating and painful way as he did this week as I studied this text. I find it not incidental that towards the end of the week when I opened up my Facebook page, there was a Facebook message for me waiting. 
And I opened the message. Oddly enough, it was from an old friend from many, many years ago. A high school friend. Somebody I haven't seen face to face in decades. But a dear friend in school. He was probably the brightest young man in my high school. I was in a very large high school. In fact, he was the valedictorian of our class in our senior year. Went on to a great university, graduated with honors. He's gone out into the world to build a career for himself and do good things. As I said, we haven't met in, in decades, but one thing that Facebook does is it allows you, at least from a distance, to observe one another's lives and to see snapshots of what's happening. We never see the full picture online, but we do get snapshots that tell us a little bit of the story, the piece of the story that people want to present to others, at least. And I know just from my Facebook observation and from our occasional interactions and conversations online that his life and my life took very different paths after high school and after college. In fact, you could make the case that there are probably not two people who are in directly opposite positions in life at the moment than he and I. If you were to casually glance and I were to reveal his identity at his Facebook page, you would quickly, immediately understand that he lives in a very urban city, and he is an openly homosexual man who is legally married in the place in which he lives. I tell you that not for any other reason but for you to understand the context of his message to me. He knows me well based on our online interactions. He knows who I am, what I do, and he's very well acquainted with what I believe and teach. And so here's what he writes at the beginning of his message. Just for sake of grace, I'm going to change names. He said to me this, Jim and I attended Metro Church D.C. for the first time last week. They're affiliated with Celebration in Orlando, and it reminds me a bit of Hillsong in New York City. First impression was positive. We've been listening in to the online services. This is a Bible-based Christian church. I reached out to the church via email to ask whether our marriage would be respected or problematic. No response. I suspect they would have responded with kindness, but if pressed, feel compelled to quote various parts of the Bible that support the traditional definition of marriage. Yet, for me, my marriage... And my relationship with Jim is only part of the whole spiritual picture in my life. My relationship with God shouldn't begin and end with my marriage. Any thoughts? If a couple such as ourselves walked into your church seeking a spiritual home, how would you respond? So you'll understand that in light of studying James chapter 2 this week, the last question that he posed in his message uh, landed in my life like a 
bunker buster bomb. It was a very serious question. It was not a mocking question. It was a question that both demanded and deserved a serious yet honest answer. And as I read that, that little message on Facebook, all of a sudden, in an instant, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, were no longer an abstract message to a group of people I don't know centuries ago. It was a question that had eminent relevance in my life, in this moment, in this conversation, in a way that really, really mattered. The question that he asked me is the question that very well could have been asked by the man, one of the men in James's hypothetical story that he tells in James chapter 2. And as we begin to consider that this morning, I want to consider the broader question in some sense beyond just the situation that I've expressed to you that landed in my life this week. What if my friend's context was not homosexual marriage? What if he was an illegal resident in the country? What if he was a Muslim? What if he was a Mormon or a convicted felon? What if he was homeless? What if he was someone that I considered a heretic? And he asked that question. If I came to your church, how would you respond? How would I be treated? What would I experience? Would I be ostracized? Would I be ignored? Would I simply be tolerated? Would I be isolated? Would I find acceptance or would I find rejection? Is it possible for somebody like me to find a spiritual home among people like you? These are important questions. And I suspect that we haven't hit a passage in James that has had more relevance to our own lives than this very passage. And I suspect we haven't hit a passage in James yet that is more overlooked and excused by people like us than this passage in James chapter 2. And so we enter into a very serious conversation this morning that has radical implications for your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and radical implications for us as a congregation. James chapter 2, you'll find, is connected to the end of James chapter 1. When James wrote this letter, you might understand that there were no chapter breaks and verse breaks. It was just a letter, and those things have been added in later for just simplicity of reference for us to be able to find our way. But James chapter 2 flows right out of the beginning, at least. This issue that he arises, or that he raises, flows right out of the very end of chapter 1, where he concludes chapter 1 by talking about and encouraging those to whom he writes to be doers of the word and not hearers only. To be people who act on what they believe, not just people who listen and nod their heads. Where he makes the case that true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a faith that's in action, a faith that's in 
thought and belief in mind and in words only is a dead faith that can't save anyone. The kind of faith that's true faith, the kind of faith that's a living faith, is the kind of faith that is both believed and lived in the way we act. That's how James concludes the chapter. And he, he sort of splices it out in even more vivid color by ending the chapter in verse 26 by saying, If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his own tongue, he deceives his heart. The person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then he continues, my brothers, show no partiality. He flows right into that. We cannot stop and think that he started a new topic at the beginning of chapter 2 because he has not. He has just simply decided, now that I've instructed you and I've challenged you to be people who do what you say, you believe, and I've laid out for you what that sort of looks like, at least in a broad sweep, now let me boil this right down to one very specific, simple issue. Put yourself to the test. In this particular issue, how do you act? Is it in line with what you say you believe? And as he introduces the issue, he introduces something that we could easily overlook. The issue of partiality, the issue of favoritism, the issue of prejudice. And we're confronted with that issue, most of us probably look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, I'm not like that. I'm not a prejudiced person. I'm not not, not partial. I treat other people well. And then we're ready to move on. That's as far as we want to think about it. But James simply does not allow us to move on. He boils it down into a very practical scenario that he puts on our plate. And he answers, he asks us the question that we must answer. What would you do in this situation? Because what you do exposes what you actually believe, not so much what you say. Before we delve into what James teaches here, we need to make clear what he is not teaching. Because this passage has been used by many to advance all sorts of crazy pieces of theology and philosophy, and we need to sort of kick the legs out from under those things just in passing quickly. Um, James is not teaching that we're never to make judgments about other people. James is not teaching that we are never to make judgments about other people. In fact, the Scriptures call us to make discerning, wise judgments about what we see in the behavior of other people over time. We're called to things like Jesus saying, A tree is known by its fruit. You'll know a false prophet from a real one by watching their lives and observing the the things that they do. You'll be able to see and judge whether... They're real or they're false. And so there is a sort of godly, discerning, wisdom-laced judgment that we're all called to and accountable to. So James is not making the argument that we are never to make judgments. He's also not arguing that the rich are going to hell automatically and that the poor are going to heaven automatically. It just so happens in his illustration there's a rich man and a poor man, and it just so happens that that was probably the most pressing issue by way of application of the principle he was wanting to address in his culture, in his day, at that moment. And so he uses that. But he's not making any sort of sweeping judgment about rich people here or about poor people here. 
he does later speak directly to the rich in some colorful language, and we'll get to that. But that's not what he's talking about here. The fact that one is rich and one is poor is relatively incidental. It's not their status that he's interested in here. It's their treatment and the discrepancy between how they're treated. He's also not not teaching that we're never to show honor to one person above others in the church. He's not teaching that we are never to show anyone honor above others in the church. There are right moments when we legitimately can honor folks within the context of the body of Christ. In fact, we have scriptural precedents that say, show honor, I believe Peter writes, to whom honor is due. In other words, there are people to whom honor is due, and it's right to show them honor. We've talked about doing a law enforcement appreciation Sunday sometime here at Grace on the Ashley and inviting local police officers to come and join us for worship. And it would be right if we were to do such a thing, to block off a section and to seat them in the front and to honor them for the way they serve our community. That would be right and it would be good. There's nothing evil about that. It's not what James is talking about. James is also not talking about, he's not teaching that we're always to engage everyone in exactly the same way. That's not what he's teaching either. Jesus did not engage everyone in exactly the same way. He had relationships with people at various levels. He related to the general population and engaged them one way. He called out 12 men to come alongside them and engage them in a different sort of a way. And even within the 12, he called out three of those to engage in a deeper sort of different kind of a way. So the issue here isn't that we're not to be closer to some than others in any circumstance. That's not what James is concerned with here. And I'll just throw this in for fun. He's not teaching the beauty of communism and socialism. Some have actually argued that from this passage. They would say, see, James is saying we're all the same and nobody deserves anything more than the next guy. Woohoo, let's all be communists. That's not what James is teaching. No. James is concerned about something very specific. He's concerned about, in the context of the body of Christ, how we treat other people. And he's concerned with the specific tendency to make quick judgments based on only external things. And that's what he delves into. And he introduces that issue in verse 1, which I've just called the introduction. And he says this, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Two things we need to pick up in his introduction. He introduces the people to whom he's speaking as what? My brothers. That tells us something very important about the context. James is not just teaching this out to the broad world. He is teaching this pointedly to people who are his brothers. These are believers. These are people who've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, whom he calls the Lord of glory. They are people who have confessed their sin to the Lord. They are people who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who have repented and turned from their sins and entrusted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, and who have been transformed inside by the power of the Holy Spirit who now indwells them, who have experienced adoption into the family of God, whose sins have been forgiven, who have been redeemed, who have been justified, who have been regenerated and made holy in the eyes of God. It's brothers. That's to whom he writes. 
And he says they're those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's important. He says, brothers, I'm writing to you. And I'm writing to you because we all share one thing in common. There's one thing that binds us all together, that unites us all. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is the thing that binds us together. And so James, right at the outset, points at the very thing that forms the unity of the body of Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has always been and has always will be and will be in eternity when we stand in heaven before the Lord Jesus Christ. A diverse melting pot of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, of every demographic that anyone could ever imagine. The body of Christ is a melting pot of all of that. The one thing that we all share in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what unites the church. And nothing else. There is one uniting factor. Every one of us comes to Christ as sinners, equally lost, equally in need of God's grace. Each one of us comes on the same terms, the terms of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We are all receiving the same adoption, the same redemption, the same sanctification. It, it is, we all come the same way. The gospel levels the playing field and it unites us together in a common bond, at a common place where no one has a position higher than the next. It's this that makes the church beautiful. It's this that makes the church absolutely countercultural in every culture everywhere. The culture around us indoctrinates us to show favoritism because it is built off of favoritism. It is built off of levels of influence and power and authority. We learn growing up in our culture from a very young age how to evaluate people based on appearance and how to determine who's important and who's not important. How to determine who we might gain something from and who we may not. How to determine who we might choose to engage with and who we might want to walk the other way from. We're taught a whole set of rules like that from our culture from the time we're born. And it's built off of favoritism. We're taught how to categorize people, how to put them in pigeonholes, and how to put them in sort of predetermined, stratified categories. The rich, the poor, the beautiful, the unattractive, the gay, the straight, the intelligent, the ignorant, the white, the black, the Hispanic, the Asian. We're taught to rank people by things like social status, looks, the clothing they wear, the race to which they belong, their personality, their intelligence, their wealth, their power, their authority, the house they live in, the car they drive, the neighborhood in which they live, the degrees that they have hanging on the wall. That's what our culture teaches us. It's what it's taught you. It's what it's taught me. And not to be outdone, the church in our culture often comes alongside the culture in general and adds additional categories by which we can categorize people. Mature, immature, Calvinist, Arminian, Reformed, non-Reformed. And the list goes on and on and on and on. In the midst of all of that, 
James. He sends an ICBM missile right into the middle of our hearts and he says to us, brothers, show no partiality. Let that sink in for a moment. Show no partiality. A good translation, a literal translation would say something like this. Stop showing favoritism of any sort. The Phillips translation, Pastor Frank has been referring to that some in his preaching. I love how Phillips translates this one, Pastor Frank. He says, don't ever attempt, my brothers, to combine snobbery with faith in the glorious Lord Jesus. It's pretty good, isn't it? What is partiality? What is James talking about when he says partiality? It's translated partiality here. If you have a different translation, it may say something else. It may say favoritism. It may say prejudice. It may say something else. But the word in its sort of origins has the idea of lifting up someone's face. It has the idea of receiving the face. And the idea behind it is, the idea behind it is showing favoritism or treating someone differently simply based on the way that they look. Apparently, there was a problem in the body of Christ to whom James writes. Apparently, this was an ongoing problem in the church. They were pandering to those with wealth and power and prestige, and they were neglecting other people. And they were making their judgment simply based on the outward appearance of how someone looked. I'll give you definitions for three words, just so you know what we're talking about clearly. And any of these words could be used to describe what we're talking about here. I like the word favoritism best, because it seems to capture what exactly James is talking about. But in an English dictionary... Uh, favoritism means simply this, the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. I think that's exactly what James is talking about. The practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. Partiality in the Oxford Dictionary simply says this, unfair bias in favor of one person or thing, favoritism. You know, the, the Oxford Dictionary has to put that U in favoritism. Prejudice. What's a good dictionary definition of that? It's an adverse opinion or leaning formed without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge. It's the same thing. It's judging somebody previously without having sufficient information to make a wise or discerning judgment. It's prejudging somebody before you have any facts that matter. It's the attitude that says, I already know who you are. Don't confuse me with what's reality. I've determined who you are. You don't need to tell me. That's prejudice. And James says, show none of it. Show no partiality. He indicates that the church already has a problem with it. And he indicates also that there is no room for any of it. He doesn't say to us, get rid of most of your favoritism. But if you do a little on this side, yeah, you know, we'll let it slide. It's not that big of a deal. My friends, we need to capture from this that James is teaching us something that we need to understand. That favoritism is not a minor infraction of the will and heart and law of God. It is a serious, serious sin. 
It is not simple discourtesy. It is not simply disrespectful. It is a serious sin that James is going to argue has the potential to contemn our very souls. And we're going to say, James, come on, man, lighten up. It seems like such a small thing to make such a big deal about. And James is going to say back to you, it's no small deal because it's the opposite of the gospel. And so James says there is no place absolutely whatsoever in the church of Jesus Christ for favoritism. Anybody from any background of any socioeconomic background who walks in the doors should be treated with the same love and grace of Jesus. No questions asked, no exceptions to the rule. But the Christian church, sadly, is bad about cocooning ourselves within our own little circles with people who are just like us, who look like us and act like us and believe like us and live like us and think like us. You know this just from your own habits of your life. In our congregation, you come and you sit habitually near the same people that you know and that you like, I presume, normally. I know that because you mess me up when you move. I think you're not here. and Oh, there they are over there. I want you to ask yourself this question honestly this morning. How would you react this morning if someone had wandered in off the street and sat right directly next to you, dressed in shabby clothes? What if they smelled bad? What if they had long, unkempt hair? Would they experience the love and grace of Jesus? Or would there be something within you that wanted to scoot a little further the other way? You see, favoritism kills, absolutely kills the effectiveness and the testimony of the church. I'll never forget when I was a teenager, I went to a youth conference. I don't know why I remember this. I can't remember what I did last week. But I I went to this youth conference. I'll never forget the speaker asked a question. I've never forgotten. He asked the question to, to teenagers like me at the time. Do you choose your friends or do your friends choose you? And immediately as I heard the question, I thought in my mind, well, I choose my... And then I stopped. And thought, Wait a minute. I don't know. Do I choose my friends or do my friends choose me? He went on to make the case that we don't really choose our friends. That our friends actually choose us. He argued, and I think he's in, at least in large part correct about this, that what most people do in life is we gravitate towards acceptance. None of us walk into a room, okay, is Robin Woods in here? She may be taking care of our kids. This does not apply to Robin Woods. I know for a fact, but to the rest of us, it probably does. None of us walk into a room of strangers and we say, okay, you're going to be my friend, and you're going to be my friend, and that guy over there is going to be my friend. Robin Woods does that, and she makes it happen. And it's true. Am I right? It's very true. And we love that about her. But for most of us, we don't have that kind of courage. We walk into a room and we gravitate towards the place where we're going to feel accepted and liked. And as a teenager, that was a powerful message to me because it was very, very true of my teenage years. We gravitate toward acceptance. People do that. And you know what? If people in the world walk into the doors of Christ's church and they don't find acceptance, but they find rejection, you know what happens? There's an enemy out there of our souls who has all sorts of crowds who will gladly open their arms wide and accept those people. Favoritism kills the testimony and the effectiveness of the church. 
The church is called to be absolutely countercultural in this. We should not have to sit back and let a godless, rebellious, morally corrupt culture lecture us on diversity and inclusiveness. The church should be setting the standard for the culture. And unfortunately, it's backwards in many cases. So James lays out the principle. And then he gives us an illustration that just makes it unavoidable, that allows us no way to evade the point. He says, suppose this happens. Here's the scene. You've gathered with the body of Christ to worship, to sing, to pray, to study God's Word. And as the gathered body of believers, two men walk into the room. One of them, man number one, We're told simply two facts about him. He is a man wearing a gold ring, and he's wearing fine clothing. This is a man who looks put together. In James' culture, that would have been a symbol of of an elite social structure. This is a man who's at the top of the social structure in James' day. And it's evidenced by the ring that he wears, and it's evidenced by the, 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 the way he shows himself in the clothing that he wears, the expensive clothing that he wears. Gold ring, fine clothes, symbol of wealth, power, the upper crust. Man number two comes in, and we're only told two things about him. He's a poor man, and he's wearing shabby clothes. Poor man, shabby clothes. Probably a poor beggar. There were these people all over the place in James' day. Probably equivalent today to a a homeless person we would find on the street. Two people couldn't be more different in their appearance as they walked through the door. And now, as they've walked into the doors of the church, the ushers have a problem immediately. What are they going to do? The ushers in our congregation are now all trembling in their seats. The greeter team has a, has a, has a problem on there. And they have a decision to make. We've got these two people. How are, what are we going to do? Well, James tells us what they do. Here's what they do. They say to man number one, come on down. You sit here. Come on up to the front. We've got a place right here for you. you there's a prime seat in the front of the, the, front of the auditorium. It's, it's, we, it's for you. Have a great view. You'll be able to hear well. Come on down. We'll, we'll, we'll walk you there. He's shown honor. He's shown respect. He's shown preferential treatment. And what do they say to man number two? They say to him, You stand over there. Why don't you go stand in the corner back there in the back? Or better yet, don't even occupy a seat. Let's leave the seats for other people. You can, you can sit down here by my feet. Could it be more of a contrast in the two persons? Couldn't be more of a contrast in the way they were treated inside the church. And so James paints the story, and then he gives a rhetorical question. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Now there's the hammer that just strikes the nail. James is saying a hypothetical scenario that plays out, but the people who are hearing it know that even if they haven't done that exact thing, that that story strikes awfully close to home in a lot of different situations of their life. And James just twists the 
the wrench even further. He said, when you do that, you're doing two things. You're making distinctions which do not exist in God's kingdom, and you're arrogantly exalting yourselves to a place that you do not belong. The first is you're making distinctions which don't exist in the kingdom of God. You've decided, based on appearances, that the rich man is more important than the poor man. You've decided that the rich man deserves preferential treatment, and it doesn't matter how you treat the poor man. You've made a distinction between the two. That there's a difference in value between the two, and that there's a difference in respect that's due to the two, and that there's a difference in the way that they should be treated. And you're wrong on all counts. Because those distinctions don't exist in the kingdom of God. You see, the poor are always being told to sit on the floor or stand in the corner. But if there's ever been a place where all people should get equal treatment, it's in the house of God. Paul reminds his readers in Galatians chapter 2, verse 27 and following, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female. We could add there is no rich and there is no poor. For you're all one in Jesus Christ. There's something about the gospel that unites us and puts us all on the same level, in the same status, deserving of the same respect and deserving of the same treatment. And when we make distinctions among people, we're running counter to the gospel. And when we do that, we arrogantly exalt ourselves to a place we don't belong. James says you become judges with evil thoughts. We set ourselves up into God's place and we think we have a right to make judgments that belong only to God. And not only do we think we have a right to make judgments that only belong to God, we think we can make them without even having the full story. By only looking at somebody. You notice in the story there's no behavior that's observed. There's no sin or righteousness considered. It's only the external veneer. That's it. The clothing and the appearance. And it generates that response. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Instead, what we do is we set ourselves up as judges. We judge people on their appearances without all the information that's necessary. We make distinctions that don't exist in the kingdom of God. And we make, make all sorts of assumptions about them and their motives. And we haven't a clue. Only God knows the motives of the heart. And I think here's probably the most egregious thing we do when we commit this sin. We sinfully reduce a very complex whole human being down to one characteristic and determine that that's all that matters. That's what happened here. They looked at this poor man... And they knew nothing about the external, I mean, the, the, the extremities of his life. They knew nothing about the complexities of who he was as a human being. They reduced the value of his life down to one characteristic, that he's poor. I think the, the part of my friend's Facebook message that pierced me the most, that really exposed sort of the hypocrisy of my own heart the most, was when he said this, 
for me, my marriage, my relationship is only part of the whole spiritual picture. My relationship with God shouldn't begin and end with my marriage. When I read those words, I reread them. And you know, he was absolutely right. Absolutely right. And what it did was expose in my heart a sinful tendency to look at even a a friend that I care about deeply and reduce his whole life down to one thing, his sexuality, and make a judgment about that. Overlooking everything else that's part of what makes him a human being that matters. I had to apologize for that. Because I know I've done it. And seeing that I've done it, it's actually quite repulsive to me. Because I would never want somebody to look at my life and reduce everything that there is to know about me to one little thing and make a judgment about me based on that. But that's what I suspect we all do in some way, shape, or form when we judge people. We overlook the the totality of their lives and we reduce them down to one little thing and we judge them based on that. And we forget that they're human beings and that the rest of their lives matter too. And when we do that, we're exactly like James says, our thoughts are evil. Our thoughts are evil when we do that. There's nothing righteous about that. There's nothing godly about that. It's pure evil to treat people that way. To think about people that way. To judge them that way. The people to whom James was writing, they were not just misinformed and they were not just mistaken. What they were doing was pure evil. And they were doing it in the body of Christ. And it's no less evil when you and I do it today. Are you, are you grasping the significance of this? Are you thinking about the subtle ways in which this sin roots down deep into your own heart? Well, our time is pretty much at a conclusion here. Let me just summarize the, 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 the last chunk of this text because it's a lot of words that really are just painting one picture. In, in verses 5 through 7, he just simply asks them three questions and he exposes the reality that what they're doing is theologically stupid and it's practically stupid too. And he gives them some questions that lay that out and they're self-sufficient. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God cho- chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? Hey, hey, hey listen up. You've got a theological problem because you're judging the rich to be the most valuable. The problem is you claim to belong to God and God is the one who consistently, historically, has set a precedent of choosing the poor to be rich in the kingdom. So you've got a theological problem in your behavior. You're acting the opposite way God normally acts. Now, in saying that, what he's saying is, when you act the way you're acting, you deny the gospel. You deny the gospel because the gospel says God comes in and he calls, sovereignly calls poor people to be rich in the kingdom. And you are insulting the poor. You're doing the exact opposite of what God does in the gospel so it's no small thing to show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. Christ did not show favoritism. 
We can think of story after story of Jesus, right? We can think about Him sitting by a well with a Gentile woman and asking her for a drink. And her shock and dismay when she says, How can someone like you ask that of somebody like me? Because nobody in their culture did that. But Jesus did it. We can think of Jesus walking down the road and encountering ten lepers who everybody else hightailed it from. And Jesus walks right up and He touches them, which no one would do. He heals them. We can think of Jesus walking down the street and poor blind street beggars crying out to Him, Son of God, have mercy on us. And everybody telling them, shut up and leave Him alone. You're not worthy of His time, only for Him to stop and heal them. You see, Christ shows no partiality. When Jesus died on the cross, He died for men of every single type. For women of every single type. And He shows no partiality. He goes on to say, boy, your behavior is also practically stupid. You're, you're, you're showing honor to the ones who oppress you and who drag you into court. What sense does that make? These are the very people that are keeping you poor in the world. They're the ones who are robbing you of your lands. They're the ones who are wealthy and can afford to take you to debtor's court and seize your land. They're the ones who can charge you exorbitantly high interest rates so that you can borrow money in order to survive and then default on your land and take it from you when you can't pay them back. And then you go to court and you have a chance in the world in court because they're rich and you got nothing. Courts don't work like that anymore, do they? And yet when they walk in the church, you're showing favoritism to them? Something backwards and upside down about that. Furthermore, you're showing favoritism to the ones who blaspheme God and who make fun of people like you. Why would people do that? Why would we do that? It seems when James puts it that way, it's so stupid. Doesn't it? I mean, I can guess a couple of reasons why I think we might do it, why they might have done it, why we might do it. On the one hand, we're uncomfortable around the poor. We're uncomfortable because we're un- uncomfortable with what the implications might be and what responsibilities we might have in their lives when they cross our path. We're uncomfortable around people who are different than us, naturally people who think differently and people who act differently. People who come from different demographic segments that we don't fully understand. We're, we're just, we're uncomfortable, naturally. Most of us. There's another reason why we do it. It's because of greed. Isn't it? Why do we, why do we, why do we give preferential treatment to the rich and to the wealthy and to the powerful? Because we too want to be rich and wealthy and powerful. And we think that if we show them some favor, there may be a little kickback for us somewhere down the line. Or in the church context, oh, I can see this one playing out. The wealthy rich man comes to the church, and we want to treat him well because we know the church has bills to pay. And he's got money. And we start thinking about what would it look like if that guy got saved and joined the church and tithed? It's greed, it's raw greed. close with two illustrations. There was a book written probably 15 or 20 years ago called The Day America Told the Truth. It exposed the greed of those of us in our culture. The question was asked in a survey of 2,500 people, what would you do for $10 million? 
what would you do for $10 million? Think about it for a minute. What would you do for $10 million? What percentage do you think would, in, would abandon their entire family for $10 million? You might stop and think, well, let me think about what kind of family it is. But 25%. Now, this one, I, this one can't be true. How many would abandon their church? 25%. I'm sure we could lose a lot more people for 10 million bucks. Don't you, Pastor Frank? How many would become prostitutes for a week? Think about that. 23%. A week or more, excuse me. 16% would give up their citizenship. How many do you think would leave their spouse for 10 million bucks? That'll cause you to evaluate the situation in your marriage, won't it? 16%. How many would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free? 10%. 7% would kill a stranger for $10 million. 3% would put their, their children up for adoption. All right, now we can say what day? What day? That, that matters. There are some days when as parents we're thinking, okay... Maybe there is a parent out there that's better able to handle this than me. No, I, I joke, but that's serious. I mean, that's, that's severe. That just, all those statistics do is expose the power of greed and what people will do for money, right? The church is not immune to such things. The whole last part of that section is James just simply arguing this. He's saying, you cannot relativize favoritism from other sins. It is as egregious as anything else. And to commit favoritism is enough to transgress the law of God, make you his enemy, and condemn your soul to hell. That's the argument in the rest of that section. Favoritism is enough to position you as a transgressor against the law of God, to bring you under the condemnation of God's law, and to condemn your soul to hell. But the passage ends with this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's James' way of saying, even for arrogant, judgmental Christians, who set themselves up in God's place, judge other people by pure externals, think evil thoughts about their brothers and others. There's mercy to be found at the cross of Jesus. And there's forgiveness to be found. But we must do as James commands us in chapter 4, verse 10. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. And we must look ourselves in the mirror very, very carefully. And we must say, Dear God, open my heart and expose it. Show me where the roots of prejudice, impartiality, and favoritism invade my thoughts and my actions and my behaviors. What people in the sphere of my life do I show favoritism in the positive toward and 
whom do I neglect because I've judged them invaluable or unworthy? Probably the worst day or the worst event that I know of in the history of Charleston, South Carolina has happened in my lifetime. It happened in downtown Charleston not too long ago. An African-American church that has historically been in the city. You know the story. A young white man shows up midweek for Bible study. Knocks on the door of a church. He doesn't look like the people who are meeting for the Bible study. From a clear, from, from a very glance at their appearance, you can see the difference. He was different in a lot of ways. In some ways that could be seen and in some awful ways that could not. And on that day, there was a group of believers that were meeting there to study God's Word and they had a decision to make. What do we do with this guy? Do we let him in? Or do we send him away? Oh, they had choices that day. They could have said, you're not like us. You're not welcome here. And sent him on his way. But that's not what they did. They opened the door. And they said, come on in. There's a seat at the table for you. Come join us. Come pray with us. You're welcome to come study God's Word with us. And they embraced that young man. And they showed absolutely no favoritism against him. No partiality and no prejudice. In every way, they acted like believers ought to act. Well, you know the rest of that story. It cost nearly everyone in the room their lives that day. One simple choice to obey Christ cost them everything. We might look back on that event as some have and said, you know what, they should have turned that kid away. They should have said, hey, you know, you're not like us, you don't belong here. Maybe it would have saved their lives. I heard somebody make that argument. And I thought to myself, maybe it would have saved their lives. But it may also have condemned their souls. Because what they did when they obeyed Christ and honored James chapter 2 was they put on display for the entire world to see at the cost of their own blood what the body of Christ and the kingdom of God actually looks like. It looks like people who love people who are different than them. It looks like people who open the doors and embrace someone who is altogether different. Who say to someone like that, come in, there's a seat at the table for you. You can worship and you can pray. You can study with us. You belong here. We don't care what you look like. We don't care what the color of your skin is. We don't care who you are. You're here. And there's a place for you. The whole world for a minute got to see what Christ does in the heart of believers and what His church should look like. People pay dearly to show that to the world. 
And I wonder, when I think about that, what a fool I am. What an utter fool. In so many ways, over the years, to show favoritism towards people. To be prejudiced against someone else, just simply based on the way they look. And I wonder if you feel the same way this morning. I wonder if you look at your own life and you take this passage seriously. I wonder if you can identify roots of that in your heart. Do you treat people differently because of their race? It's a problem in our culture. Dear Lord, it's a problem in our culture. It's a problem in our church culture. You can't pretend racism is dead. It's not dead. For heaven's sakes, it's not dead. What about people who are compared to you? What about people who are from a different religion? What about people who just fit the category fill in the blank? I suspect if we take what James has challenged us with this morning seriously, all of us have some repenting to do before the Lord. And so I want to give you a moment to do that. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. To lead us in prayer. Then we're going to sing. If you'd like for somebody to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus or just the implications of what we've talked about this morning in your life, I'll be at the back of the sanctuary. I'd love to talk with you. There's others back there who'd be happy to talk with you and pray with you. If you have questions, dear God, we are struck by the weight of our text this morning. And we are struck by the reality that we do not want to face this. We don't want to face this. We excuse our prejudices. We excuse the favoritism we show people. We pretend like it is no big deal. But I pray, oh God, you'd help us this morning. Shine the light of your word into the recesses of our hearts and expose the reality of our lives before you and our sin pray that you would do for others what you did for me this week through that simple message on Facebook. And I pray that you would draw us this morning to repentance. That we would seek your forgiveness for setting ourselves up as judges in your place, for making distinctions that don't exist in your kingdom, for not loving people like you love them, for being selfish and greedy. And I pray, O oh God, that you would make this church a place where any human being from any walk of life, with any appearance whatsoever, could walk in the doors and find a seat at the table and a place to worship and people who would love them on your behalf. Only you can do that. But, O oh God, you must do it in us, please. For Christ's sake, help us. We pray.